Welcome to the Sleep Science Pod, the podcast that reveals the science behind one of the most fundamental, yet most mysterious of human behaviours, sleep. I'm Dr. Caroline Horton. I'm an academic psychologist and the director of Dreams Lab. I also really love sleep, so personally, as well as professionally, I know how important it is for our mental and physical health. Throughout this series, I'll be talking to guests about their common sleep complaints and offering evidence-based tips for getting that all-important shut-eye. Together, we'll evaluate the evidence that sleep improves all aspects of health and well-being, and whether it really is that ultimate panacea. Previously in this series, we've talked about the evidence that sleep can affect aspects of physical and cognitive function, ranging from poor sleep leading to increased problematic inflammation responses, increasing risk of heart attacks and slowing down our reaction times. But we've also mentioned that sleep affects our mood and emotion processing. This episode explores the relationship between sleep and mental health, both in clinical diagnostic terms, as well as in terms of more everyday struggles with well-being and even shorter term feelings of stress and tension. We'll consider some recent evidence highlighting the importance of sleep on our mental health, and we'll have a think about how our dreams and nightmares can reflect emotion processing too. I often start my presentations on sleep by asking audiences to think about how a poor night of sleep affects them. By far the most common response is feeling grumpy. Actually, I'm in Lincolnshire, so we say Mardi, but it means the same thing. We likely all know that feeling of waking up on the wrong side of the bed and not being able to shake that low mood. It can manifest in being quick to snap, interpreting things overly negatively, and having a general feeling of having to move uphill with difficulty and tension throughout the day. Sometimes we all have days like that, whether well-rested or otherwise, but poor sleep with numerous interruptions or sleeping for too short a time is more likely to lead to these feelings relative to being well-rested. For the most part, those days or hours can pass and normality can resume. But what happens if it persists? Well, it can dampen your emotional responsivity. Persistent low mood can really interfere with daily functioning, not to mention being pretty miserable to live with, both as the sufferer as well as being around people with such low moods. Very few people seem to be simply of a grumpy disposition. Grumpiness hasn't been identified as an enduring and stable personality trait by psychologists. Rather, people can experience the trait of either being relatively stable or unstable in terms of their moods and mood changes. So having prolonged periods of disturbed sleep can lead to feeling down and not being able to see hope in things. And that can be an indicator not of being a grumpy person, but of depression or a milder but persistent form, dysthemia. If we look at the statistical uh, criteria for depression from the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, which is the one that's used in the UK, One of the depression symptoms is disturbed sleep, for example, finding it difficult to fall asleep at night or waking up very early in the morning. This implies that the low mood precedes and therefore causes the problems with sleep. Now this might be true, but equally, as we've just seen, disturbed sleep can also lead to the low moods. We should also mention that another potential manifestation of depression is sleeping too much. On the whole, most people sleep too little, 
more than too much, so we don't want to give the message to sleep less very easily. However, if people are so down that they have extremely little pleasure in things, and then they're avoiding their daily activities, they may be choosing to sleep more. In turn, that excessive sleep has indeed been demonstrated to further worsen moods. The poorer mood may lead someone to further withdraw from their daily life. Similarly, for generalised anxiety disorder, we can see sleep as both a cause of the anxiety as well as an effect of it. One of the diagnostic symptoms is a difficulty falling or staying asleep. In truth, you'd actually be hard pressed to find any single mental health disorder that doesn't refer to sleep disturbances somewhere in its profile of symptoms. But with anxiety, we can see how that relationship might manifest. Let's say that you've got something you're really worried about. It might be a health issue or an upcoming appointment. You might find it hard to switch off at night because you're thinking about it. In turn, your sleep is immediately affected. You might get to sleep later than usual and then wake up in the night and worry that you're not sleeping enough, which further adds pressure to the system. The following day, you've lost a couple of hours sleep and consequently, you haven't had the opportunity to process your emotions during sleep, meaning you're quick to react and more ratty than usual. There is a reason that Matt Walker, a sleep scientist, refers to wakefulness as low-level brain damage, after all. You might miss your appointment, leading to yet further anxiety. More worry, more disturbed sleep. More disturbed sleep, more worry. So this anxiety-poor-sleep relationship is in fact cyclical, and it can be increasingly difficult to break. A range of theories of sleep have focused on emotion processing. In fact, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep in particular, is associated with heightened activity of the limbic system, the emotion centre of the brain, and the amygdala in particular, which mainly processes fear. There's a wealth of evidence that emotional memories are preferentially consolidated in sleep over and above neutral ones, and that particularly occurs during REM too. What's more, dreams reflect emotional aspects of our lives, and as we've seen in other episodes, Personal emotional concerns and experiences are likely to feature in our dreams over and above all others. So this brain activity in emotion processing regions is associated with simultaneous subjective experience of those emotions. If we remember from earlier series, we need to work through a range of stages of sleep before we can experience lengthy bouts of REM, which typically appear towards the end of a good night's sleep. So logically, we need to sleep for a good few hours before the brain system can really process these emotional experiences. In simple terms, if we sleep too little, we can't regulate and process our emotions, which might lead us to wake up, feeling unsure how to make sense of our emotions. It's like we need to experience the negative emotions, in particular when we're asleep, and safe to do so, so we're able to keep those emotions in check when we wake up. It may well be that our emotional dreams are the conscious side effect of such experiences during sleep. Some theorists have suggested that we even simulate or mentally rehearse highly threatening situations whilst we're asleep, so we can be better prepared in the day should we ever find ourselves in such situations. It's hard to test these theories really precisely, as it's not exactly ethical to put people into dangerous scenarios just to see how they react, but evidence does suggest that both sleep and dreaming allow us the opportunities to activate emotions, which then mean we're better able to respond appropriately during wakefulness. 
Along with my colleague, Dr. Josie Malinowski, we've suggested an emotion assimilation hypothesis of sleep and dreaming, whereby experiencing different emotions in sleep, giving rise to emotional dreams, gives us the chance to extract the emotional component of particular kinds of memories and then process them more effectively. This can be seen in the cases of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where highly traumatic experiences are so associated with overwhelming emotion that there's too much to process and the system breaks down. With a healthy recovery over time, sometimes a very long time, the trauma becomes decoupled from that emotional response and sleep likely helps with that process of healing. But at first, it can be really hard to sleep, not least because the emotional memories rebound uncontrollably, resulting in flashbacks during wake and nightmares during sleep. That can make it actually really scary to go to sleep, to enable you to get that opportunity to process the emotion. What's needed then in the case of nightmares and to some extent in PTSD as well, is to find a way to cope with the extreme emotion. There are a few therapeutic treatments available and I wanted to find out more about what nightmares really are, how they differ from normal emotion processing during sleep and if there are any advances in sleep and dream science that might allow us to help those who suffer. I had the pleasure of chatting to Dr. Michelle Carr, a postdoctoral researcher in the Sleep and Neurophysiology Laboratory at Rochester University in New York. Michelle has researched sleep, dreaming and nightmares extensively and is currently exploring novel techniques for interfacing with and controlling the sleeping mind, something that she calls dream engineering. So hi, Michelle. Nice to talk to you. Hi, Caroline. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. So we're really interested to find out a bit more about um, relationships between dreaming and mental health. Um, so uh, we're particularly keen to find out about nightmares and when a dream may become a nightmare. So could you help us with defining a nightmare, first of all? Yes. Yeah, so a nightmare is basically any very intense negative dream um, and it can be any emotion. So most nightmares are typically thought of as being marked by fear or anxiety, but you can also have nightmares that are marked by grief or sadness or anger even. Um, and they often are so overwhelming in the amount of emotion that they have that they lead to the person waking up out of the dream with a start. And um, they remember the dream very vividly and they might even feel some distress after they wake up that kind of persists into into waking life a little bit. So is that waking up definition, is that a criterion that determines something as a nightmare rather than a really bad dream? Uh, that is technically often the definition that's used in research for research purposes, I think, that you can have a bad dream, which is just a really negative dream that doesn't cause you to suddenly wake up, whereas a nightmare is so intense that it leads to an awakening. Um, but these really seem to be just along a continuum. So um, really bad dreams can cause just as much distress as, as nightmares can. So it just seems to be a continuum of how much negative emotion and how overwhelming the dream becomes. So we know that with dreams, some people are more likely to remember their dreams than other. But it seems with nightmares that if they are so overwhelming, if you have them, you're probably more likely to remember them. So what kind of people are more likely to experience nightmares? Um, so there's a few factors that seem to be at play. I mean, 
what everybody seems to, well, I guess I couldn't say everybody, but most people seem to experience bad dreams when they're going through periods of stress. So, so it seems to be kind of a normal thing that most of us do experience regardless of our personality or um, other types of traits that, that when we experience stress, it comes out in our dreams in the form of bad dreams. But certain people are more likely to experience nightmares frequently and um, uh, over longer periods of time. So people who, uh, couple terms I'll throw at you. So people who have thinner boundaries is one construct that's been studied a lot in um, nightmare research. And this is basically just the idea that somebody is very sensitive to the, their emotional and their sensory environments. So they're very sensitive to the world around them and everything seems to affect them. Um, and so these people remember more dreams, but also remember more nightmares. So they seem to be more affected by um, emotional events that happen in their life um, and these, these things kind of come out in their dreams. But there is also kind of on a more clinical level, there seems to be a relationship with um, experiencing trauma or experiencing adversity early in life that this kind of um, creates a proneness or a proclivity to experiencing nightmares later in life whenever somebody is exposed to stress. So it's a, a simple case of be fearful in the day, be fearful at night too. I think so, but you know, it, the thing is, is that some people aren't aren't affected by their their bad dreams and their nightmares. So that seems to be something that differentiates people. Like we all might experience bad dreams in response to stress, so fearful during the day, fearful at night. Um, but some people, you know, you wake up from a bad dream and, and it doesn't affect them at all. And so there there seems to be a difference here that certain people, when they wake up from a bad dream, it, it really impacts their day, it impacts their mental health. Um, they feel very anxious, they feel scared of going back to sleep because they really don't want to experience these bad dreams anymore. Um, so that seems to be something that that differentiates people. So their, their tendency to experience distress in response to bad dreams and nightmares. So if we think about that distress factor, is it a kind of U-shaped relationship with mental health whereby maybe if you don't experience any distress at all, that might not be so good for you in terms of recognizing the stressor. Um, and then also similarly, if you are extremely distressed by your nightmares or your dream content, then that might indicate something not so great as well. Uh, and then in the middle, you know, is it a case that it's kind of beneficial to recognize your nightmare activity? Yeah, this is a question that I, I always get whenever I present about bad dreams and nightmares um, that, Somebody will always say, you know, I have bad dreams, I have nightmares, but I, I don't want to get rid of them. I think they're good for me. Like it, they they point me to areas of my life that maybe I'm struggling with, and they they kind of they bring into conscious awareness um, something that's important to us and something that maybe we we want to be thinking about and to be processing and dealing with. Um, so in some ways, you know, a bad dream or a nightmare that that uh, is impactful that you wake up and you go, oh, that that kind of has an impact on me that I feel like I should think about that or look at that, um, it can be a good thing, right? But of course, if it's so distressing that you don't wanna go back to sleep, um, then you're starting to really interfere with um, kind of more restorative functions of sleep and, and it can start to just make you more anxious um, in general. So, so yeah, I think you shaped. So this is interesting about nightmares sometimes being so distressing that they might be something to fear in and of themselves um and i've certainly talked to people who whose sleep have been affected because they're so afraid of going to sleep 
Um, so, I mean, is there anything we can do for people who are experiencing such traumatizing nightmares or distressing nightmares that they're not able to get to sleep? Uh, yeah, the most common treatment for nightmares is um, something called imagery rehearsal therapy. So um, it's a waking imagination or waking visualization technique where you first you write down the nightmare, so the, the narrative of the nightmare. And then um, in your imagination, you try to visualize what would be a better ending to this nightmare? What would be what would make me feel safe or feel more positive or feel more empowered? And you just rewrite the nightmare with a more positive ending. And then you just rehearse that, that new nightmare, that, that positive ending dream. You rehearse that in mind for like 20 minutes during the day. And um, this really simple technique has been shown to decrease nightmare frequency and, and decrease nightmare distress. And because it, it impacts. So the next time you're about to have the nightmare, it changes and you might have a more positive dream instead of the nightmare. So you start to see that the way that we think about dreams and, and the way we work with our imagination and waking life actually changes the way that we dream. It changes our dreaming life. It gives us more, more agency and more positive emotion within these dream experiences. So um, it can be really empowering for people and it, and it kind of, especially that, that fear of sleep, it, it can shift attitudes towards sleep and dreams because you start to realize that you do have some control over this. You're not completely helpless, which is really one of the, the most um, difficult things for people with nightmares, nightmares is that they feel helpless. They feel like there's nothing they can do. So when you realize that just through imagination, I can start to change my dreams. Um, then it can be really empowering and change your attitude towards sleep and towards dreams. What do you think might be the mechanism for that to work? I mean, do you think that that feeling of empowerment continues throughout the night when an individual is actually asleep? Or do you think the actual rehearsal and of overcoming the negative situation during the day is then processed when someone is asleep? I don't know that we know because both of those are possible. Um, yeah, so on the one hand, you know, when you rehearse it in mind, um, you're essentially changing your reaction to this nightmare script that you've been experiencing. So you're, you're teaching yourself how to respond differently to this nightmare scenario. And um, so then the next time it appears in, in a dream, you kind of, you've, you've learned a skill, you've learned how to respond to this, um, threat or this nightmare scenario in a different way. So you, you, you give yourself a new avenue to take in the dream. So it could be more about learning the skill of instead of just reacting as you have in the past, you learn how to react to the situation in a new way. There's a bit of an exposure effect as well that you, you're not so afraid of just the nightmare itself. You've written it down, you've worked with it. You, you see during the day that you're capable of, of thinking about this and of imagining it. Um, so there is that kind of more just processing it during the day and reducing your fear in that way as well. Yeah, that idea of having the skill set to cope sounds like something that would benefit, again, the individual during the night as well as during the day. We talked a little bit about um, agency um, and, and control and um, there is so much interest in the thought of controlling dreams. Um, and, you know, lucid dreaming has always been a sexy topic and people seem fascinated by the thought of being able to control their dream life. I've always been a bit sceptical, if I'm honest. I feel like maybe learning to uh, or training your brain to be in a wake-like state when you're asleep 
might interrupt that flow of sleep that we know we desperately need. So what, what's your view on lucid dreaming? Yeah, that's interesting that you um, mentioned that reservation because it is true that lucid dreams are um, a bit more of an aroused, you know, they're a hybrid state kind of between wakefulness and dreaming. So you are a bit more aroused uh, than you normally are during dreams, which is also the case with nightmares. And with nightmares, that's a problem, right? That you're not getting as deep asleep because you're, you're highly aroused, you're, you're feeling emotional and it leads to more awakenings. Um, and lucid dreaming seems similar in that way that, and lucid dreams often do lead to awakenings, right? Because people experience such intense positive emotion that it leads to an awakening. Um, but another angle on lucid dreaming is also that it's, when, when you learn lucid dreaming as a skill over time, it becomes more akin to mindfulness. I think that over time you're learning to really um, maintain awareness in the dream, but you're also learning to actually kind of regulate emotion. So um, one of the early things that you learn when you start to lucid dream is, is you don't want to experience too much emotion. So don't, you know, you don't want to experience intense positive emotion even because it will lead to an awakening. So you're, you learn how to observe the dream and kind of maintain this openness and curiosity, but, but kind of try to keep yourself relatively calm and try to um, engage with the dream in that way. So I think over time, lucid dreaming is a skill that becomes more like a mindfulness of sleep and dreams. And I think that, that can be a positive thing for people. So we know that you've been working to understand and promote dream engineering. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. So dream engineering, I mean, lucid dreaming and using lucid dreaming to um, modify dreams or to change your dreams, I would say that is kind of a technique of dream engineering, but dream engineering is just a really broad term to describe um, the different types of techniques that people are using to influence dreams or to uh, interface with dreams, and that has to do a lot with technology, so um, you can use different types of sensory stimulation um, and present sensory stimulation to people while they're sleeping and it actually gets incorporated into their dream and can influence the dream as it's happening. Um, so for example, a study that we did at, at Swansea University, we used like a flashing LED light and this is based on a lot of Stephen LeBerge's work done even as early as the 80s. So um, using a flashing LED light when somebody's in REM sleep and um, training them that when you when you notice this flashing light, um, that's that's a signal from us. We're we're telling you that you're dreaming, and so a participant might be in the midst of a dream, um, just dreaming about being at the beach or something, and suddenly the sun starts flashing at them, and they realize, oh, this is I'm actually in the sleep lab. The experimenters are sending this cue to me, and this is a dream. So they become lucid. Um, so that's just one example, but. Um, other, you know, techniques of dream engineering are just looking at how can we um, basically interface with the dreaming mind and kind of using the body and using our sensory awareness during sleep um, to, to get cues in, to get, to get messages into the dreaming mind and to potentially um, change dreaming as it's occurring in positive ways, hopefully. It's absolutely fascinating, and I suspect we're going to see more of this, or at least more attempts to try and communicate with the dreamer while they are dreaming. 
we will see whether it's successful and, and whether the dreaming brain is is open to it um but clearly you know there's a tech market out there and a lot of interest in it i think and um, and i was going to ask whether you talk to people who have recurrent nightmares. I mean, one thing we see with dreams is that sometimes people feel that they have recurring dreams, but they really don't. Um, there may be recurring themes or, um, or you know, characters, but the overall dream, as we know, is very different to waking life, or at least in very extreme or rare cases, do we see the whole of a waking life scenario replayed in a dream. Is that the same with nightmares um, or do we are we more likely to see recurrence of themes? Uh, we're more likely, I think, to see recurring themes in nightmares, especially recurring themes. So, you know, some people might have they always have dreams of being in an out of control car. That's one of my my recurring bad dream themes um, or always have themes of uh, failing an exam. It's another common one. but. Um, it's it's still a theme rather than uh, necessarily replicating a waking life experience, uh, unless you're in the case of people who have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, they'll actually have nightmares that are replaying uh, as trauma that I've, they've experienced in waking life. Um, and so these PTSD nightmares seem to be kind of an extreme form of nightmare that repeats in an exact way what they had experienced in waking life and it just every time they experience the nightmare it's the same thing over and over again um that seems to be more extreme but even in the case of nightmares people usually have recurring nightmares it's just it's more thematic so you know i have the out of control car dream but sometimes i'm driving sometimes somebody else is driving uh, sometimes there's two cars and you know there's different ways that it could happen but it's still just a general theme that people seem to re-experience you know in the past couple of decades maybe sleep health has become really integral to a lot of um, mental health treatments you know that maintaining proper sleep hygiene and people are very aware that um, a good night's sleep actually has a very real impact on their mental health during the day. I think people have become very aware of that. And it's largely due to a lot of the sleep science that has occurred and also kind of sleep medicine really promoting that maintaining a good sleep schedule is very important to you. And I really hope that, you know, with dream science um, growing as it is, as far as I can tell, that, that in time dream, you know, awareness of dreaming will just get integrated into what we're starting to know about sleep. And that a lot of people who are promoting sleep medicine will also be aware of how um, our dream content and our subjective experiences during sleep are also hugely important to how we feel during the day. Michelle, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to Michelle about the ways that our waking emotion can manifest in sleeping thoughts and learning about how rehearsing an awareness and control of those thoughts in wakefulness can help us to cope with them during sleep. Michelle reminded us how severe and life-limiting nightmares can be, that they often reflect something substantial and emotional in our waking lives, and how paying attention to our subjective experiences might help us to identify, to some extent, the nature of our mental health and what may be troubling us. There's a little caution here because we don't want to read too much into our dream content or risk interpreting something that isn't there. However, if you do experience recurrent themes in your sleep thoughts, especially if they are disturbing you, it's worth paying attention to them to see if there's anything that you can recognise. 
We've also considered how sleep health in general reflects mental health. It's hard to demonstrate the effects of just sleep on any long-term journey to better mental health because so many variables are involved. But it's highly likely that being well-rested can help us to cope better with recovery. Perhaps it even reduces our likelihood of our well-being suffering in the first place. A number of studies collated in a meta-analysis in 2015 have demonstrated correlations between healthy sleep durations, around that healthy seven or eight hours a night mark, and a reduced risk of depression and anxiety compared to much shorter and also much longer sleep durations. A recent study published in 2019 from Matt Walker's lab demonstrates that the anxiety-increasing impact of sleep loss is linked to specific brain regions, namely impaired medial prefrontal cortex activity and associated connectivity with the extended limbic regions, those emotion centres that we talked about earlier. Interestingly, their study also demonstrated not just REM-dependent emotion processing activity that we talked about earlier, but also that non-rapid eye movement, slow wave oscillations, contributed to the anxiety-reducing benefits on these brain networks following sleep. These authors demonstrated that even small night-to-night reductions in sleep across the whole population that was tested predicted day-to-day increases in anxiety. So they're not just focusing on long or severely disturbed patterns of sleep deprivation or sleep deprivation affecting just rapid eye movement sleep. They recognised that whole sleep is is necessary, not just one particular kind, non-REM or REM. And that whole sleep can really help us to reduce the likelihood of becoming anxious. A different kind of approach was demonstrated by Scullin and colleagues in 2018. And they asked people to write down a things to do list before they went to sleep in a laboratory for a night. They had 57 participants and approximately half of those spent a few minutes writing about the tasks they'd completed that day, focusing on accomplishments. And the other half wrote about upcoming tasks that needed to be completed over the next few days. Those in the latter group fell asleep approximately 10 minutes faster than those who had written about their accomplishments. This might not seem like much, but it was statistically significant. And over a few days, this soon results in hours rather than minutes of extra shut-eye. Authors attributed this beneficial effect to falling asleep quickly to mentally offloading concerns about pressing tasks. That way, the individuals could be relaxed and ready for good quality sleep without concerns being in the way. Those concerns may still have been activated and processed during sleep, but they weren't getting in the way of getting to sleep in the first place. So there's a sensitive balance to be struck between allowing sleep to do its job and ensuring that the concerns are adequately processed without just being swept aside. It's all rather fascinating how some of our most distressing issues can be dealt with effectively when we're not really aware of them. But they do likely manifest in our thoughts during sleep, whether we remember them or not. So sleep may provide the safe space to experience and process a range of emotions, in turn, helping to regulate our emotions when we're awake. To me, this is one of the most fundamental aspects of sleep science, which draws together our understanding of dreaming and of memory, helping us to make sense of our recent experiences and our sense of self. It also helps to showcase that sleep isn't just a physical restorative state, though it's surely that too, It's also a psychologically restorative state and an active one involving emotion processing and reactivation.
If we interfere with that, we prevent the opportunity to make sense of our worlds and consequently to cope better in them when we're awake. The evidence concerning the relationship between sleep and mental health is almost unequivocal that sleep is beneficial for mental health. There's a slight complication here when we consider the psychotic aspects whereby people experience distortions of reality. On the one hand, we can almost think of dreaming or perhaps REM sleep cognition as a sort of psychosis. We hallucinate, we believe things that aren't there, we think we're doing things when we're not, and we often have no memory of them at all. Perhaps having the opportunity to engage with all of that means that we don't need to do so, i.e. be psychotic, during wakefulness. Indeed, some scholars have argued that a labile sleep-wake cycle is akin to a psychotic schizophrenic mind where there's little control over what's perceived to be real or not. On the other hand, some people who may want to benefit from the creative outcomes of this kind of experience, like artists, for example, occasionally feel that accessing that psychotic state might be beneficial to them. And they can do so by disrupting their sleep-wake cycle. So they're sort of uh, making the most of this um, distorted sleep-wake pattern. I've heard of a handful of cases of this, and yes, in some of them, there may be some increase in perceived creativity. But to me, it's a risky game. There are dangerous consequences of disrupting sleep in this way. Really, this isn't evidence against the idea that sleep is beneficial for good mental health anyway, but rather it's evidence that tampering with sleep can tamper with your perception of reality, which can only be bad for your mental health, surely. Nevertheless, this relationship with psychotic experiences is interesting. For one, because using dreams as a comparison might help us to understand the brain organisation and cognitive experiences of people who suffer with psychosis. And for two, because improving a healthy sleep schedule may help us to lessen the psychotic or other disorganised symptoms in sufferers. As with many of the other aspects of health that we've considered throughout this podcast, sleep is difficult to isolate because it co-occurs along a whole host of daily behaviours and habits. For some, such as those with a diagnosed mental health condition, sleep alone might not reverse the diagnosis entirely, but it might help to establish a new routine involving regular mealtimes, waking, feeling more refreshed at a bright time of the morning to help get a dose of sunlight and to kickstart the day, in turn helping us to feel sufficiently energised to exercise a little more. It might also grant the conditions to process some of our emotional strains so we can cope better in the day collectively. That's a massive improvement. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Sleep Science Pod. I hope you found it helpful. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Sleep and Memory. And until the next episode, sleep well.